I hope it's been a good Lord's Day for you. We've gone back to Kennett to be at a performance for Abby today. And, and uh, how many of you still have your target on you? Anybody still have it? Nobody? Did anybody go out in public and anybody ask, what are you doing with a target on you? Anybody? anybody? Okay, well, that doesn't make any difference. We're in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. I received, Melissa received another note tonight that said the exact same thing as the one this morning. Apparently, somebody thought it worked. Was this morning shorter than normal? Nobody feels that way? Okay, never mind. Well, then, it didn't matter. Uh, I think it was not Daryl Hyde this time. I think it was an offspring of his who happens to be here. By the way, this offspring of his is going to Africa fairly soon. So if you want to support somebody doing a good thing, there's some good work being done there. And plus, you know, if, if any offspring of Daryl's going to amount to anything spiritually, you're going to have to help him. Okay, so we're going to have to do that and send him off that way. Um, we are in Exodus chapter 7, kind of wrapping up the first nine plagues, just some what I would call like potpourri. It, it was some some things in these plagues that need to be pointed out, but I didn't know where to put them along the way. And that usually means it's a shorter sermon than normal. So maybe that's the truth. We're going to be looking at the moral of the story of the plagues, the moral of the story. And, and we think of moral of the story as you've had these kids, these kids' stories you grew up with, and they tell the story, and at the end, you kind of help the person apply that story. There's some kind of really good principle to be drawn out of the story and that will help and benefit the hearer. The only problem with saying the moral of the story is most of the time we assume a story like that is fictional. But in this case, it's not fictional. This story really happened. The, the story of the ten plagues that we have in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. An actual event, not a myth at all, with some great lessons. But I want to look at chapter 7 to answer a question that Jeremy Johns had. Is Jeremy here? This is the second time I've answered this question. He hasn't been there either time. So I'm just going to answer it one more time, and then he just, he's on his own on this. He asked, how was it that the Egyptian uh, magicians could copy some of those first plagues? That's the question he asked. Chapter 7, beginning verse about 11. This is before any of the actual plagues start. This is the throwing down of the stats, which was not one of the ten plagues, but it was kind of like a... It was kind of like a foreword of that. And he says, chapter 7, Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men, because we already know that Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each one of them cast down their staff, and they became serpents. How did they do this? That's what a lot of people want to answer and ask. And we notice he says, the only thing it says in the text is they did it by their secret arts. They did it by magic, by the way that they did their cunning and their sleight of hand and, and distraction. Just like any magician would, maybe that's what they did. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's one interpretation that would say that, right? There's another interpretation that might say something different. If you skip on down to chapter 7, verse 22, the first plague, uh, the water turned to wine. The water of the Nile turned to, to wine. Uh, that, that's, that's another story. Sorry. Uh, the water turned to blood. And uh, verse 22, it says, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Uh, and so the first plague was copied too. Then we have the frogs copied 2, chapter 8, verse 7. 
But chapter 8, verse 19 says this. The magician said to Pharaoh, can't do this one. That's done by the finger of God. So the magicians are drawn in. They're able to copy the first couple, but after that, they can't copy them anymore. And here, the people who are magicians know better than anybody what other magicians do. And they look at this and they say, you know what? We can't figure this out. We have no idea how Moses and Aaron are doing this. So we're telling you, we're watching this. This is the real thing. This is God doing this. This is the finger of God, an endorsement from the enemy, if you want to call it that. Now, there's a couple theories about this. One is, like any magician, they have this secret, cunning way of distracting your attention to let them do their thing. That's explanation number one. I do think these magicians simply had some kind of trick that allowed them to do the first couple. Magic. Do you know anybody else in Scripture who is known by a bunch of people as a magic person? And he looks at genuine spiritual power being done and says, you know what, I can't do any of that, but I'd sure like to. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. The text is up there. I'm not going to read it. But everybody called him the great power. And he knew, Simon knew the inside trick. He knew what he was doing to convince people he had some legitimate power. But when he sees the apostles actually doing real spiritual miracles by the power of God, even he says, whoa, that's beyond me. Uh, can I give you a 20 for it? You know, that kind of thing. Maybe it was just magic, and that's kind of what I think it was. These people just knew how to do this. But there is another explanation. It's possible that there's some dark spiritual forces back behind what they were doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says to the Corinthians who were saying, you know what, we've lived in paganism all our lives. We've gone to these false god temples all our lives. Is it okay since we know there is no god there? There's no god Asclepius. There's no god Diana. But we want to go through with our families and still do all that worship stuff. Is it okay if we take the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning and then on Tuesday night at the worship of Diana, we go through the temple and do their worship with them because we know it's not real? And Paul says no, because while there are no gods there, there are demons there. There's something there that's evil and has some incredible power, and you don't need to be messing with it. I believe we live in a world where evil can have some power and can have some hold on us. I think Ouija boards need to be ignored. I think you need to stay away from all that stuff that you, everybody might say, well, that's a superstition or whatever. Listen, I think devil, the devil has some power, and he can mess with us if we'll give him the chance. He's like a, I've used this before, a chained-up dog. You stay beyond the chain, you're okay. But hey, if you're going to get up there at night and sneak in and look inside the house, and he comes out and he chews you up, don't you go complaining. You're the idiot who approached him, okay? You're the dumb one who did that. Don't get in his realm. Leave him alone. And there are certain ways that you can mess with Satan's power and do some weird stuff. Stay away from it all. Regardless of how it was done, God's power was superior. The serpent that came out of Aaron's rod swallowed the others. And they could not change the water or the blood back to water. So 
it was obvious that the power of God was greater. So whatever it is that caused it, I think it was magic, but even if it was some evil spiritual forces, they were nothing compared to the power of God. So that's how that, and that was a question nobody really cared about except Jeremy, who's not even here, and you are forced to listen to an answer. So sorry, but uh, anyway. Here's the moral of the story. Morals of the story is, seems to me. Number one is, Were these acts done by Moses or were these acts done by God? There were some of them that waited on Moses. Sometimes he lifted up the rod. Sometimes he would do something with the rod. One time he took soot and he threw it up in the air and it became some boils on people. There were things Moses did that ended up producing a result that was amazing. So was, Ma was Moses the one who did it or was God the one who did it? Why does this matter? There's a relationship between the faith of us and the power of God. And so I think we need to understand this. We understand this from the plagues. The New Testament, when it looks back on this, it would say these are the acts of Moses, or it would call it the acts of God. Both are correct. Why does this matter? Well, let's look at baptism for a minute. Is baptism a work you do that earns your salvation? There are some in the religious world that say so. It's not an act that you do. It's not a work that you carry out that earns your salvation at all because even when you obey God, doing exactly what he asks you to do, it's not your work that saves you. It's God himself. In the waters of baptism, when someone's immersed, submerged completely under to where they're buried with Christ and they rise up out of the water, when you come up out of the water, your baptism didn't save you. God did. Is that true? But you couldn't have been saved without that baptism. Is that true? That's both sides. You've got to understand this, and I think we've got to appreciate this, that even when we obey God perfectly, we can't, but even if you could, even if you're weak this week, you lived, per I mean, almost perfectly, you did exactly what God told you to, you still haven't earned a right standing for yourself before God. It's all grace. Every bit of it, from first to last, it's faith in God. However, you must obey. He will not save you apart from obedience. Otherwise, that would be universalism, and I don't know what we're all doing. This is like, who wrote the law? Is it the law of Moses, or is it the law of God? That's another way of saying it. And the answer is, yes. God wants us to work, and he wants us to obey him, and he expects obedience from us. But even when we obey we still have to say, I'm saved by the grace of my God. You have to say them both at the same time. It requires it. I think the best way to look at this is like Peter does when he looks back at the, at the, uh, the flood. And what he does, he basically says, the ark saved Noah, right? It's like he, if you want to be saved from this flood that's coming, you've got to get in the ark. It's a choice you make, and so you do it. But even when you do it, God is the one who's saving you. It's all there. How is this that we can illustrate, and why is this important? It tells you this. Everything is by the grace of God, but everything requires obedience from us. Let's give him the best of both and appreciate what he's done. 
Here's the second thing I would say. If you'll look back at chapter 5 verses, or excuse me, chapter 3 verse 18 for a moment. He's given him the instructions for going to Pharaoh for the first time. Verse 18, they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He is supposed to take the elders with him and together they say, we've met with our God and we need to go three days journey and meet with him. That's what I want you to say. Now when he actually goes chapter five, notice this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, where are the elders? Didn't take them. Notice what he says. Here's what the Lord says, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Those aren't the words God told him. This kind of backfires. Nothing happens from this because all that happens is Moses, or Pharaoh says, I have no idea who you are and I'm going to make the work on the, the Israelites even worse. Now they've got to gather their own straw. Now, the implication for me is this. From after this moment, I think Moses goes, and he's a little bit uh, gunshot, or, or a little bit too enthusiastic here. He doesn't do what God tells him to. He doesn't say what God tells him to say. And because of this, things go bad. After this, every time Moses speaks, he only speaks what God says. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord God said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, God says. You are me. You are God to him. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You speak what I speak to you. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh and let the people, uh, uh, to, to let my people go out of this land. Verse 7 or 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. From this moment on, every word they speak is a word they heard from God. The message of this is this. When you speak, representing truth, you need to speak the words God says and do what God tells you to. Don't change it. Don't alter it. Don't try to uh, uh, change anything about it. Do exactly what God tells you to. Now, there's three verses I want you to see from Jesus. Here's Jesus himself talking about his ministry. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. When Jesus comes along, he only does what the Father shows him. That's all. Next one. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority. Speak just as the Father taught me. Every word Jesus spoke was a word he heard from the Father first and then gives to us. We've got to be careful with our doctrine. We've got to be careful with our lifestyle. Let the words we speak be the ones that God spoke first. Don't use your own words. That's, that's careless and that's scary. A third moral from this story. God offers us chances to avoid his punishments and his disciplines. 
every time it says, you know, Pharaoh, if you don't do what I tell you, these plagues are going to happen. And plague number seven, he says, I could have decimated your land. I could have destroyed you completely. But I'm doing this incrementally because I'm trying to convince you I really am the God of the universe. And there are people today that will say to you, I don't believe in a God who punishes. I don't believe in a God who disciplines. I don't believe in a God who would even let there be a hell. Well, the problem you have with this is God's told us there's one. But he hasn't just told us there's one. He's told us how we can avoid it. We, he told us in the future there's going to be this parting right and left of people. And God's told us the criteria he's going to use to divide people up. And what we know is this, God in his grace has told us what his criteria is. He told us it's coming. He told us how to avoid it. God's ultimate will is for those who want him to live with him in eternity and those who don't to be separate for him, from him for eternity. And he's told us this. He's given us warning. Love does discipline. But love, if it's true, tries to prepare people for discipline and tells how to avoid it, and God has done that. Greatest moral of all is the last one. I'm going to recall for some of you old people like me that there's an old commercial. I believe it was American Express that said this. Membership has its... What? Membership has its privileges. When you got this American Express card, man, there's some neat things that are open to you that not just anybody with, like, uh, you know, MasterCard can have. There are so many plagues that there's a distinction between what happens with God's people and what happens in Egypt. You're going to get decimated by boils, right? But in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel are, that's not going to happen. I'm going to draw a distinction between what happens in Egypt and my people. It goes all the way through the last one. And you may remember this. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. When he says there's a death angel going to come through Egypt. It's going to take all your firstborn children, everybody, except for the firstborn children of my people in Israel. And if they'll listen to me and put blood on the doors and the doorposts and stuff, I will pass by them. Now, my question I mean, is, how many of you think some Israelites lost their firstborn children? How many think they did? Why do you think that? Because anytime there's an announcement made, there's somebody who doesn't hear it. Right? We print the bulletin up, and yet every Monday people call up and say, when is that? Was it in the bulletin? I didn't. You make an announcement at church, and not everybody hears it. And even when God says something to God's people, not all of God's people pay attention to God. I bet you there were some Israelites who lost their firstborn children because they didn't listen to the instruction God gave them. But it was unnecessary because God gave them insight beyond what the Egyptians had. God gives them revelation and says, if you'll do these few things right here, you will avoid the entire experience of the death of the firstborn. What I'm telling you is God treats people different. God treats his people different from people who are not his people. When you become a believer, you get the Holy Spirit in you. It's a mark. It's a mark God can see. It's a seal. 
He seals you as his own, and he treats you different from people who don't have that seal. And if you don't believe that, look at the New Testament again. He treats people differently. Those who have chosen to be in Christ receive all the blessings, spiritual blessings that are in Christ. Redemption, forgiveness, we're called his sons, we're given insight into his will, we're given revelation, we're given all these wonderful privileges because we are in Christ. Guess what happens to those who choose not to be in Christ. They miss out on those. God does not treat everybody the same. Membership in God's family has benefits. It also has responsibilities. You may have revelation, but sometimes that just makes things worse. If you have revelation but you don't do it, you don't hear it and do it, You'll get treated just like the world. Membership has its privileges. Those who are in Christ receive amazing things. How do you get there? Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The problem with Israel was this. They basked, basked in the joy and blessing of being the people of God. They wanted all those privileges. They wanted none of the responsibility. And because of that, they hid it. And they said, we want to keep this to ourselves, and we want the rest of the world to go to hell. And because of that, God stripped his privileges from them. They are no longer the people of God. And when people try to tell you that politically, just let it go sailing over your head. The people of Israel and Israel today are not the people of God. They are not. They revoked that years ago when they wanted to keep it a national ethnic thing. God never intended it to be an ethnic thing. He expected it to be a responsibility. And by the way, we better learn from that because if we do the same thing, the same thing will happen to us. It's a great thing to be a Christian and be in Christ and have all these blessings, but if you sit there and just enjoy them without trying to share them, God always intended them to be shared. We want everybody to be in the in Christ camp, everybody in the world if possible. We're going to leave the plagues behind after tonight, except for the tenth one, but there's a lot to be gleaned from studying them. The amazing feats God performed long ago to redeem his people out of Egypt are great stories for our kids to hear and for us to know and to appreciate and review. There are certain segments. We often think that the Bible is full of time periods of miracles, but they aren't. There's a time period of creation, obviously, and then you've got Moses and Joshua. But then there's a long time where there are no miracles after that. As far as we know, David never performed one. Solomon never performed one. Years and years go, and and everything looks back. When we talk about this, the prophets all look back to that great time of all those miracles being done as a time to reflect and have a trust in that God. He's not going to do miracles all the time. He's not going to rescue us abundantly all the time. He's going to let us live off of those miracles and believe them and have a faith that we can can live in a miraculous age after that. Then comes Jesus. And this is our story. The Old Testament kept looking back to that wonderful time of Moses and Joshua, and that's where their faith started, and that's where it grew and matured until they had their faith. And then the New Testament comes along, and there's a greater story. 
we have a better story than they do. I mean, that's great. The plagues are great, but listen to ours. Jesus comes along as God in the flesh. He heals every sort of sickness and illness and disease, casts out demons, does all these amazing things, and then to cap it all off, he rose from the dead, or was raised from the dead. And those who came right after him, like Joshua did Moses, those who came right after him could do those miracles. In the book of Acts, you see these amazing things being done. But after that, the miracles are gone. They just don't seem to show up anymore. And we look back on that age of miracles. That's where our faith comes from, the eyewitness testimony of those miracles. And we put our faith in that, that Lord. And I'm going to tell you, as amazing as the deliverance from slavery in Egypt was, it pales in comparison to the deliverance from slavery to sin. This is where we live. We have greater things to see. We have greater things that we've experienced. Enjoy that old story and take full advantage of that old story, but don't miss the new one. We've seen greater things than they have, and may we not respond as they did and waste the view that we have. Don't waste your vantage point. We have the story of a Savior who came and died for us, and we build our entire faith off that story, even today, years later. And until he comes, that's enough. That's enough for all believers. That's the moral of the story. If you've never responded to the gospel, I want you to know that the same basis for you to respond is the story, the story we've all heard since we were young, the greatest story ever told. And that story is going to be sufficient for salvation till the end of time. And that's the same story you respond to. A God who comes into human life and human flesh takes on this sin of the world through his atonement on the cross, dies for us, and God raises him from the dead, and from that story comes our salvation. If you've not believed in that, and if you've not joined in that story by your own death, burial, and resurrection, tonight's a great time to do it. Moral of the story, you have everything you need for belief. Right there in the story we tell. Keep telling the story Keep living out the story in your own. Keep sharing the story with other people, and that's how salvation comes. If anyone needs to respond tonight, do so now as we stand and sing to encourage.